Um, anybody here ever eaten oxtails? Raise your hand if you... Okay, good. <laughs> All right, oxtails. I used to think that that was just kind of a, a figurative word for something else. Like I thought, well, they call it oxtail because, you know, it it's kind of looks like a tail, but it's not really an oxtail. I was wrong. It is. It's a tail of a cow. That's what it is. Chopped up, sliced up, and cooked in food. Now, the first time I ever had oxtails, it was uh, mixed up and cooked up with collard greens and bacon. So, Jeremy, you might like it. Actually, I know you would. And it was served up with cornbread and barbecue pork ribs. This is the first time I had oxtails. Now, it was in Tampa, Florida. Uh, I was a teacher in Tampa. I taught elementary art for six years there. Uh, we were there in Tampa for a church plant, and we and I and I was teaching art. Uh, that was my job, just like it is here. But um, it was an elementary school, and it was an urban elementary school. It was, in, it was an inner city, a very inner city um, school, in a, in a rough neighborhood. It looked rough, and you could tell when you entered this neighborhood because it. It, it, when you cross the, the, the invisible line, you got into this neighborhood, and all, and, and all of a sudden, there was no need for sidewalks or, you know, th- now, that happens a lot out here in the county here in, in Tennessee, but, but there, sidewalks were pretty normative, right? So, to go into a neighborhood and, there, and the sidewalks disappear, you know you're getting into a rougher area. It's an area where, eh, you know, a pothole might be there for uh, months before anybody ever gets around to filling it, you know. Um, landscaping, not really done there, you know. Houses looking dilapidated, many of them with boards, spray painting on the, you know, graffiti on, on, on vacant houses. Just that kind of neighborhood, and this is, this is the school. And in the middle of this neighborhood was the neighborhood school, and it was painted lime green, the only, actually lime is not the word. No, because that would be more attractive. Imagine lime mixed with watermelon green. I don't know. Just as bright. Now, you can get away with that in Florida. The closer to the ocean you are. Closer to the ocean you are, the more houses you see that are painted blue, peach, and green, and so on. But as you get more inland, away from the bay, you don't see that. You don't see that so often. But here was this school. I don't know how, how that happened. I don't know how it t- turned green. It was surrounded by a chain-link fence, really tall, all the way around. And there were gates, and it was, it was locked. You had to either have a key or permission, you know, call on the phone or whatever, have someone come to let you in, and that's how you would get into work. Because it had exterior doors. This is Florida, and it's hot there. And I guess, I'm guessing that it's cheaper to air condition classrooms individually instead of air conditioning hallways and having indoor. So each classroom was sort of by itself and you would get in through an exterior door. And so that was, that was no different with my classroom. It was like that. And there was a teacher's aide there. And, and Ms. B, she had been there for 30 years. She was from the neighborhood. I mean, she lived in the neighborhood. Uh, she got her first, that was her first job, was to be a teacher's aide at this school. 
and she had been there 30 years and was still there. Uh, and when I, when I left Tampa three and a half years ago to move here, she was still there. Had to say our goodbyes and, and everything. And I used to say hi to her in the morning. And, and this took a, a little bit of overcoming some intimidation in me because she had a somewhat intimidating presence. It was not a small presence. It was a large presence. Her friends called her Al Capone. I never asked why. But I mean, if she cut her eyes to the side at you, you might want to back, and go, back off and go the other way. Just watch out. She had an intimidating presence. But I thought, that's okay. I'm going to say hi to her. I, I, had, I had kind of purposed in my heart that I'm going to say, I'm going to treat everyone here um, you know, custodians, uh, teachers' aides, uh, students, everybody. I just want—I I just wanted to say hi to, them, wanted to greet them properly in, in, in the mornings. I just wanted to to show love that way. That was just something that God uh, was—I felt was telling me to do purposefully. And and, and it, it's not always done. You know, school polit- schools have different like a hierarchy of of levels of people that. Um, and, uh, and sometimes teachers can be too busy to say hi to a teacher's aide or a, or, or a custodian. And uh, so I, I, I made it a point to do that. And, and so, you know, good morning, Miss B. After a while, she kind of warmed up to me. Good morning. You know, she'd been there for 30 years. She's like, who's this guy? You know, skipping in, smiling. Good morning, you know. I'm not a morning person, but by that time I'd have a couple of cups of coffee had driven, you know, 45 minutes to get to work, so I was wide awake. And then one day, she kind of motioned me over, like, you know, gestured me like this, you know, in her Al Capone way. Hey, come here. Okay. So I got, you know, a little closer. Are you sure? You know, she's standing around her friends, and they're like, yeah, hey, what's Al Capone about to say to this guy, you know? And... I kind of, so I kind of you know, sneak up, and, or not sneak up, but just approach carefully with caution. And she said, check the refrigerator at lunch. Bottom shelf in the drawer where the vegetables normally go. There's a plate covered with foil. It's yours. And then she's like, go, go. <laughs> so all day I'm wondering, well, what, you know, what is this? At lunch I go, and I walk in, you know. And she's in there, but she doesn't acknowledge my presence. She continues eating, you know. So I go to the fridge, little break room, you know, and I, I look under there. And I'm thinking, and I, you know, I'm thinking, do I say thank you? So I pick up the plate. I kind of look. She's like. <laughs> so I'm not supposed to, I guess I'm not supposed to say anything about this. So I get the plate, and then I kind of shut the drawer. I see some people kind of looking like, what's he doing in here? He never goes to the fridge. And I kind of sneak out, and I'll go back to my classroom, and I open up the plate, uh, lift up the foil, and it's, it's oxtails and collard greens with bacon, pork ribs, cornbread, and I don't remember, uh, maybe a piece of cake. Seems like they always put a, a dessert, a piece of pie or something in there. And I just ate the biggest lunch. It was so big, I felt like I had to lay on one of my art tables and take a nap. Let's read Philippians 4.10. Or 10 through 15. We have that? Okay. I'll give you a chance to find it. 
Uh, it's also going to be on the screen. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Now see, when Miss B first started giving me the plates of food, the oxtails, collard greens, cornbread, and, and things like that, uh, she was stealthy at first. She, she was sneaky. Uh, I had to go and get it. You know, there was a, there was a code. I... I, I if I walked in that day, good morning, you know, I, I would kind of, I, I'd be able to tell, you know, she'd motion, she'd be like, you know, and then I'd be, I would know, okay, bottom drawer, plate of food. And my, so this started to change the way I greeted her in the morning. It seemed like my, it seems like my, my greetings got more and more enthusiastic, you know, and, I, and on my drive to school, I would start to, to, to look forward to say, you know, saying good morning to Miss B because who knows, I may have had a plate of, of barbecue waiting for me. You know, good morning, Miss B. How are you today? You know, I started thinking, this really is going to expose me a little, but I started thinking, I deserve this. I'm such a nice guy. That's why she's bringing me this food. Because I smiled and said hi. I gave her friendliness in the morning. I'm helping her kind of melancholy morning mood. She needs this. She needs this from me, and so she's repaying me by, by giving me plates of food. This is what's kind of going on in my heart. Now, at the time, I would never have articulated it to myself in that way. But looking back, I could see that's what was going on. But then one morning... Actually, now, yeah, it was, getting, it was approaching lunchtime. I'd had a couple of classes. I was on a break. I get a knock at my classroom door, and I see it's Miss Brown. She kind of peeks in. I see her face, you know. Doors locked. You always keep the doors locked, because there, there are a couple of times in the school's history where someone would just walk in off the street into a classroom and ask for money or something. And so, you know, so I run over there and unlock the door. She's like, let me in, you know, hurry. She's holding a plate of food. She comes in, shuts the door. Don't let, don't tell anybody I'm bringing this. Why not? Well, because if I don't bring it to everybody, they get really upset. They get mad. But I wanted to bring you this food. And she started telling me why she brought this food. It turns out it wasn't my charming smile and friendliness that prompted this gift she told me that the Lord had told her that she needed to encourage me by bringing food because her ministry, she said, that God had given her was to prepare food for people. And that every Sunday afternoon, they would go to church, and then after church, they had a big, huge barbecue meal with all of the family and extended family and neighbors, 
And she would cook up all this food and she always would make sure there were leftovers and she would put the leftovers aside and she would bring them to the people that God told her to bring them to. And that God had told her that she was to bring it to me. And she talked about how she loved Jesus and after that, I realized something. My behavior had nothing to do with it. My friendly hellos weren't why she was blessing me. For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Verse 11. I wonder if we can find that little part up there. If not, it's no big deal. But because we're really familiar with this verse, aren't we? For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. This is a verse that people will sometimes quote you or you will quote to someone when they feel like they don't have everything they want. Man, I wish I had a higher paying job. Well, you know, Paul said he learned to be content in whatever situation that he was in. Or we need to learn to be content. And that's typically how we think of this verse. That's typically how we think of it. But we need to look at it in its context, in the whole context. This is important. It's important to understand any scripture in the Bible. It's important to understand the Bible is understanding context. So, you know, I, I, I have seen shirts, uh, on, and on the back it says, I can do all things uh, through, through him, he strengthens me. And, and, and that's great. I love to see that. But, and I love, and, it said, and I've seen this used uh, to admonish and, and to exhort people to be content in whatever situation. But for us to really understand, we need to look at what's going on here. Why is Paul even saying that? I mean, these are his brothers and sisters in Christ. These are, this is a church he planted. This is a church in a city where he preached the gospel. But now he is in need. He's actually in prison. And he's, he's writing this letter and he's saying thank you to these people. And it is a really interesting way of saying thank you. I want you to imagine saying thank you to someone for a gift the way that Paul's doing it right here. It's peculiar. It, 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 it is strange. I, I mean, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. So it's kind of like, thank you. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And he talks, he, he continues describing about how he's been hungry. He's been, he, he's had plenty, but he's learned to be content because in Christ he can do all things who strengthen him. Christ is his strength. Christ is his food. Christ is everything he needs. God provides everything for him, not them. Yet it was kind of you to share. Isn't that, can you imagine doing this at Christmas time? Like you get a gift. Thank you. This is what I've always wanted. Not that I really need this from you because I have everything I need in Christ, but I do appreciate you giving it to me. I mean, yeah, I need it, but I really don't need it because everything I need for life and godliness is in Christ. Can you imagine, have you ever done that uh, to a birthday present, you know, in response to that? And I actually don't suggest doing that necessarily. In this context, this was a carefully written letter meant to teach, but still, This is good stuff. This is good stuff. He's acknowledging their gift to be good, to be a good thing, to be a blessing. He's acknowledging it. But he's doing it without allowing them to be his savior. 
They're not his savior. And he's making it really clear. He's using this as a teaching moment. They haven't saved him by bringing a gift. They haven't, yes, he needs the gift, but they they haven't brought him something that God hasn't provided. They haven't done something for him that God hasn't done first. And he's making it really clear. He's allowing God's love, and, and I'm, I'm alluding to the scripture we talked, uh, looked at a couple weeks ago in 1 John that says that perfect love casts out all fear. And it's really God's love because he says we love because we were loved first. That's what casts out the fear. He's allowing that love to cast out the fear of man. To cast out the fear of man. Last week we looked at the scripture, the fear of man lays a snare. And he's, but he's not having that. He has one Savior only. He has one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's making it clear to these people, thank you very much, but I have everything I need. But thank you again. See, Paul knows that fear ruins everything. This is what we've learned in the past couple of weeks. Fear ruins everything. And we remember it started in the garden. We, that was our first Sunday a couple of weeks ago. We talked about where fear comes from. It started in the garden. Because a certain serpent told Adam and Eve, remember, you have something to be afraid of, and it's God himself. Because he lied to you. He's not who he said he was. You're a threat to God. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. You need to be vigilant and watchful, not for his word and over the garden he's put you in, but for yourself. And that's where it started. And so that was the first Adam. But then we learned Jesus is the second Adam, the one who's faithful, the one who sees the world as a fathered world, clothed and fed by his Father in heaven, one who is watchful for God's word, who knew it well and used it to overcome temptation in the desert. He used his word. He knew it well. He didn't add to it. He didn't take away. He didn't incorrectly paraphrase. And so that second Adam is the one who had the perfect love that casts out fear. Paul knows that. If the fear of man, people-pleasing, is like, it's like taking, it's like getting up on the cross, trying to climb up on the cross. Jesus is there. Perfect Lamb of God, sacrifice for all the world, and take him off and try to put ourselves up there. Now, I think that's actually very disgusting because the Bible says that our righteousness is filthy rags to God. So we're no sacrifice that's pleasing to God. Jesus is the sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And that's what we do when we are in fear of man, when we're trying to save each other, trying to be each other's saviors. People-pleasing. And I mentioned and gave you plenty of embarrassing uh, illustrations of how I am a people-pleaser. And I come from a long line of worry warts and people-pleasers. And I have, uh, I share in that guilt. And I share in repenting with you guys for that. Guys and gals, sorry. To me, guys is, the word guys is kind of gender-neutral. Sort of like mankind. 
guy's kind. So anyway, yeah, fear's like a car. Whatever happens with a car on the outside didn't start on the outside. It started under the hood. And so when we see fear, we know that there, are, there is something else happening under there. And everything under the hood of a car is connected to something else, all the way from the spark to where the tire meets the road and everything in between. So if you see fear in yourself or in someone else, it's not just fear. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on under the hood. I mean, each thing is powering something else, each part. And to work on it, that means you can't just say run better to your car. Or if I just drive it better, no, you have to get under the hood and you have to see what the problem is. It's in the drivetrain somewhere. And that's what fear really is. It shows us a symptom of something that's going on under there that's serious. And fear ruins it ruins it the way the, the the way you run. Because you weren't designed for fear. You were designed for watchfulness. To be to guard, to watch, to keep. To be vigilant. That's what you were designed for. That's why we have fear and worry. It comes from that good place. Sin ruined it. And it became hypervigilant. Fear. Anxiety. And it causes us to run, to rattle, to have knocks under the hood, to, to steer wrong, to go the wrong direction, or to not run at all. And it does this in our communities. It ruins community. So let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about some of the outward symptoms of this. Have you ever been kind of ticked at somebody because of their response to, to your generosity? You did something nice for somebody, and they didn't thank you as enthusiastically as you would have liked them to. Maybe they sent you a thank you note. Maybe not. Maybe they texted you. Maybe not. Maybe they said thank you, but they didn't say thank you. It's what I've always needed. You really came through. They didn't do that. So you're a little ticked. Now, you don't want to say it because you're in Christian community and you don't want to act like anything bothers you, right? Now, if you're not a Christian here today, then you'll, 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 uh, you'll message somebody you know, on Facebook or whatever and you'll slam them. You don't have a problem with that, right? This is how the world functions. This is how, and it's normative, okay? But in Christian community, you realize by exposure to the Word of God and by the Spirit of God convicting your heart that there's probably something a little wrong with how you feel, so you're not going to say it. Maybe you did something nice for someone, but you didn't get the credit. Does that ever happen to you? Chase and I were talking about that. Ooh, I hate that. Like you're talking to someone and they're telling you, man, he just really can't, this person, he just did something so nice, and, but they're getting confused, and then you realize, actually, it was you who did that nice thing, and, and you keep wanting to remind them, <clears throat> yeah, that was nice. <clears throat> yeah. Who was that again? Are you sure? Yeah, that was me. You know, you want the credit. 
You want the credit to your name. Maybe you've been, you were disappointed by someone's lack of hospitality. You go to their house. You see the Keurig coffee pot over there and the little tree with all the little Keurig coffees. They don't offer you that coffee. They offer you a glass of water. Eh. Why? How come I don't get the coffee? Maybe they don't have time. I don't know. I mean, it is, it's really interesting how all, of this, how all of this works in community. You know what? They didn't say a single word about my cute baby. And look, who would not want to pinch those cheeks? They didn't say anything. They never say anything about my child. They never talk about how cute or smart my child is. That bothers me. They didn't pay attention to me. Didn't ask me enough questions. Talked about themselves. Ticks me off. You know? And it's the other way around, too. Like, what are your expectations when you, when you have someone over? You know? They come over to your house. And this can be just, a, a, you know, a, an individual, a family having another family over. But it could be, this could be describing some of your community, actually, gatherings. No, I mean, it's okay. This stuff goes on. All right, we're supposed to be forgiving each other, having grace for one another, repenting for this, and then moving on. But this does go on. I mean, maybe, maybe our, our, our expectations are a little, um, you know, selfish when, when people come over. We want them to compliment our house or, 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 or the way it's decorated, or, or we want them to, to really go on and on about the dessert we made, or or we want them to, to pay a certain kind of attention to us, and if they don't, then it bothers us. Or maybe they come too early, or maybe they come too late. And we're, I mean, we put all of these expectations on people. This is people-pleasing, by the way. And people-pleasing has its root in the fear of man. And the fear of man started in the garden, where we feared man, not God. We reverenced and feared ourselves. We did not fear God. So that's, that's all it is. We want to save each other. We want to be each other's saviors, and we want others to save us. We feel insecure, so we want them to make us feel secure. Save me. I think they feel insecure. I'm going to save them. Sometimes it, it is the motivation for our encouragement that we will give someone so that we can get encouragement back. And does that inform now or impact your attitude toward that person in the future or even other people? Without thinking about it, do you kind of make your decision based on what you think you might get in return? It is really easy to do. And if you're not a Christian, it is what you do. It's normal. Everyone does it. I want to be friends with this person because they make me feel good. I want to be with this person because I'm lonely and they cure that loneliness. I need this person to save me. This is how I need someone, to, I need a guy to hang with. Makes me feel good. So I'm going to go hang with a guy. Or I'm single and lonely. So I'm going to meet a girl and she's going to cure my loneliness. And that's, that's how it works. But maybe we do this kind of stealthily 
in the Christian community where it's not supposed to work that way, where we're supposed to get all of our identity and we know that we have everything for life and godliness already in Christ. So trying to get it and attain it from other people becomes the fear of man. And so it starts to, it starts to change the way we treat people. And we kind of have that as a filter in our interactions with other people. Even our very best friend. I mean, these are real needs I'm talking about here. Loneliness, uh, need for an affirmation, um, encouragement, you know, uh, acknowledgement of things that you've done well. These these are, th- these are real needs. God created us with these needs. These, they're not wrong. So whenever we trust Jesus, we don't throw those needs out like we, don't not, we no longer need them. God created us to need them. And he created us to be provided for by him. Adam and Eve were to walk daily in the garden as he revealed himself and knowledge of him to them at his pace, at his, in his timing, the way that he wanted to do it. And he set up the garden in a loving and watchful way with boundaries. And his law, as David points out, often in the Psalms, is beautiful and something to be delighted in. He created us to get affirmation from him. He told us who we, who we were. He said we were made in his image. And we're to like that. I like knowing that I'm made in God's image. I like being affirmed by God. I like not being lonely. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And he made Sure that that was not the case anymore. He created a helper to help him be vigilant and watchful of the garden and of God's word. We need to remember it's of his word as well. His very words were to guard and to be watchful. So they're real needs. I'm not saying deny that. That's all the world's trying to do. When, uh, you know, people who, uh, if you're not a Christian here today and you're saying, well, what are you saying? I'm supposed to stay lonely? Uh, I mean, all I'm doing, are you faulting me because I'm trying to cure my loneliness or my insecurity or whatever? No, that's normal. That's what we do. We live in a ruined world and we have real threats, real worries. Facebook. Facebook is, Facebook is like another universe. Another, it's like an alternate reality. It's a place where some people live. It's sort of like, if, you, if anyone ever tried to describe Facebook, like 30 years ago, if they tried to describe this is what we're going to have, it's going to be like this uh, cyberspace sort of uh, universe where people sort of live and they have friends and relationships and everything, only it's not really going to be real. You're never going to see anyone face to face or anything. You're never actually going to talk to them. You're going to have friends you've never met. And we would be like, you're crazy. That's, there's no such thing. No way. That's weird. But it exists. And so all of these issues apply here, except they're sort of uh, multiplied. They're amplified, aren't they? Because now we don't have to worry about the face to face 
reaction of people. Now we have little thumbs. Or like if you're on group me, we have little hearts. Grown men are like, I liked your comment, heart. (laughs) We do this all the time. We're doing it last night. We were making funny puns, and we would heart out, heart that one. No, I don't heart that one. I heart this one. Look, this one has four hearts. In Facebook, uh, getting likes is really important. And so, but some people have, have gotten getting likes down to a fine art. So in order to get uh, um, likes, you must uh, appeal to a broad audience. And you need to because you have like 500 friends. So you have to be sure that you say enough things about yourself, but you have to bring in a few things that other people might find interesting, like food or music or, uh, I don't know, a famous person, a quote or something. And so you type it in, and then, like, you know, a few minutes later, you kind of, see how many, there's the little red one on here. No, it's four. Oh, good. Let me see what the, has anyone liked it? How come they didn't like my comment? I always like their comments. I don't even like their comments. I just like their comments because I kind of like them. I don't want them to think I don't like them, so I like their comments. It's a stupid comment, but I like it because there's no place here where I can say that. Like, there's not, they ought to have like a menu. I like the person, but not the comment. No offense. But there's no, I guess that would be a thumb sideways, but there's not that. It's like, you either like them or you, so you, you don't, but, but, but no one, not, you know, it, it, if you're not a Christian, then maybe you, you, you write mean stuff on Facebook, but if you're a Christian, everyone writes sort of nicety things, you know, nice, nice, unless it's someone they're never going to run into personally, then they can give it to them. This person's wrong, 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 wrong. I'll never see him in person. I mean... Fear has ruined community, and it, it does ruin community. And it sounds like, well, Kevin, you're being so, such a downer. Yeah, because that's what makes the good news so good, is that things are so bad. The world was ruined by sin. And it came in through fear. What about the world? How about how, about how we... How we how we interact with the world. And when I, when I say the world, I, I basically mean anyone who's not a believer, anyone who's not in the kingdom of God. Non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus. This is just the world. You could, they could be strangers, they could be co-workers, whatever. But it ruins your witness. Fear ruins your witness. And we are called to be witnesses. We're told that we're sent as witnesses of Jesus and all he is and all he's done to the world. That's who we are. Fear ruins that, though. I mean, do you consider it like when you're at work with coworkers? Uh, do you, I mean, do you, do you consider the possible reaction you might get before you share the gospel? Well, yeah. Well, why? Because I need them to like me. That's, that's, part of my, that's part of my salvation. I need to be approved of. So I'm going to think about this first before I go and just start talking about Jesus to this person. I fear being disliked or misunderstood. That may be even worse. This person thinks that because I'm a Christian that I don't love gay people 
or that I won't even be friends with a gay person. This person thinks that I'm judging them because they know that I am a Christian and that I love God and that I love Jesus. And so I am misunderstood. They've never taken the time to ask me. And they don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't like that. I have a need to be known and to be understood. That's a real need. God put that in me. Do you serve people then, the world, just whoever it may be, for the thank yous and the, and the sort of uh, warm, fuzzy feelings you're going to get from them rather than out of just a sacrificial love? I mean, this can definitely happen in community. As, as, as communities on mission here at Legacy, we have a rhythm of serving those who are outside of our community. And so why do we do it? Do we do it so that we'll feel like we're better Christians because we need to feel righteous? We have that need to, to, be, to feel righteous. By the way, it comes from a good place. That's a good feeling to have, I, to, a need. God put that there. But see, we want to go and meet that ourselves. Is, are we trying to meet that need ourselves when we serve? Sometimes it's undetectable to the one being served, but sometimes it's very, very obvious. I mean, I think about Luke, uh, um, Luke for, for years, uh, I know you did, uh, served the homeless in Tampa at, at a cafe where they served food. Really nice little restaurant. They set up the tables, put tablecloths on it, and then, then they, they had servers, and they had a chef, and he was cooking up the food. And, and Chase and I were talking about that because he had an, an experience or two when he had a day off. He went and, and helped serve there. That was kind of a hard, from what I hear, hard place to serve. I mean, because Chase was describing how when he was on his way, he was just thinking, they're going to be so grateful. I mean, here they are, homeless. They don't have meals. They're going to get a nice meal. They're going to they're be very thankful. But then it turned out that they weren't always that thankful. I only get two sweet and lows. You guys are cheap. Sometimes they would fight, like physically, fist fight in the place. I mean, Luke's got some stories from that place. And so this could, uh, Chase was describing, cause a fear to come up in here in, in him to, to make him not want to, I'm not sure I want to serve there anymore. Kind of afraid of the reaction I'm going to get. I'm not, I'm not getting thanked the way that I feel that I should. So is this how we make our decisions? Are we only going to serve people that will act thankful or give us the attention that we want after we've served them? Is this how we are going to treat the world? This ruins our witness, by the way, because that is not what Jesus did for us. People who don't even know him or acknowledge him, he came for left heaven and did that and, and lived a life on this earth full of pain and in a ruined world and then died on a cross killed by the people who still didn't know him or recognize him as the son of God. So Jesus didn't say, you know, I'll come just, I want to make sure I'm going to get this many responses first. Yeah, I want this many people to go ahead and sign up and say, yeah, if you come, it's the Son of God, we'll believe in you. <laughs> That's not what he did. He loved us first. 
so we can love. We saw that in First John last time. So, uh, I, now, I'm, my age is going to show a little bit here. But in 1994, some of you are like, that's what year I was born. There was a prayer breakfast where the little four foot seven old Mother Teresa spoke at. And she gave a speech at this prayer breakfast. And it was in Washington, D.C. And I've, I've watched the C-SPAN video a few times. I love to watch that. It's really funny to watch, though, because they, I guess they didn't think about, like, how tall she is, so, or not tall. So the microphones are, like, right in front of her face. And the, the camera never moves. So when you watch the C-SPAN, you just see, you hear her voice, and then there's, like, three microphones, and they're all in front of her face. But she gives this speech at this uh, interfaith gathering where we're all going to get together and we're just going to pray to the good one. And some there are staunch, staunch you know, believers, Christians, Southern Baptists. And then some are way on the other end, like, you know, agnostics. Or I just, I believe there's a God. I just don't. He's not, you know... Any way up the mountain is, is going to lead to God. You, just, you might be on the other side or whatever. You know, it's all, it's all good. And, there, and so every mix of the... It was translated into six different languages, this speech was. And there were 150 different nationalities that were represented in this breakfast. Uh, and, in this, and they're hearing this speech. And it was, it was on C-SPAN. So it is... If this little lady didn't have something to fear, I mean, then there is nothing to fear. Because the most powerful man and woman in the world were at this breakfast. The President of the United States and the First Lady, the most powerful people in the world, are sitting there. And she's about to say some things they don't agree with. And she's not going to mince words doing it. I'm thinking about this, and I'm going, I'm a big wimp. I need to repent. This little lady shuffled up there, and she talked of Jesus. She talked of him being, she talked about his being the son of God. She described the gospel. She admonished our nation for its sin. Boldly, you're not really, and that wasn't the, what you, we were supposed to be doing at that breakfast, but she did it anyway. And you might not agree with Mother Teresa's theology. You might not agree with some of the things that she said. But I wonder, would we do that? Would I do that? Well, I would if perfect love had cast out all fear. She didn't care, but I'm afraid of persecution. Okay, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8.18. I'm afraid people won't approve of me. But just as we have been approved by God to, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. I'm afraid of losing my life. Paul says, For to to me is uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 121. 
And Paul, when he's talking about being content, he's in jail and doesn't know if he's going to get out. And he could die there as far as he knows. But Paul takes his eyes off of the very, very real dangers. And he doesn't just change his perception and act like it's not real. He just takes his eyes off of those. And he puts them back on a reality still. But the reality that he's looking at and staring at is the cross and an empty tomb and the glory of God. And he stares at that and he refuses to stare at the fact that he might die. And he refuses to stare at the fact that he's been misunderstood and that he's being persecuted. And people don't, some people don't like him. Now, Mother Teresa got a standing ovation, I mean, when she, when she spoke at this breakfast by most people, but not everybody. Some people showed their disapproval by refusing to applaud. And, and, and listen, the president, he, at, he, was, he was very gracious. He spoke of, of, he commended the fact that she lived what she believed. He commended her life, her well-lived life, but he didn't commend her message. He didn't. And a well-lived life is going to be the result of someone who really believes the gospel and has allowed God's love to cast out all fear. That's going to be the natural result is a well-lived life. And people will never be able to argue with that. But they are going to argue. And they are going to hate the message of the cross. They're, They're not going to like it. They're going to hate it. But it's the message that we have. But it's good news to those who are being saved. But it's foolishness to those who aren't. And that can't be changed. So Miss B called her Miss Brown earlier and gave her name away. She showed me a little picture of how it could look. And I'm really thankful for that. And I've been thinking about that as I was preparing for this. You know that I could serve that she could serve me without expecting anything in return. She didn't care if I smiled at her. God had told her to do something. And she was doing it. Knowing that she was pleasing her Savior and that Jesus was her Savior, not me. I wasn't the one who was going to provide that affirmation and approval that we all need. She was getting that from her Lord. She knew her identity was in Christ. And she told me about it unashamedly. She didn't wait to see if I was a Christian or a believer first. She didn't ask for permission. She just did it. She had an opportunity and she seized it. She was a bold witness. She looked me straight in the eyes when she was talking to me. And with her actions and her mouth, She proclaimed the gospel to me. And I thought I already knew it. (laughs) She was already content in Christ. She had everything she needed. So I could smile at her from then on or not, and it had no impact on her service, though it blessed her for me to be her friend. And I was. But what a freedom it was. What a freedom in that friendship. I didn't feel I had to please her. 
she didn't feel she had to please me. So, I could be a much better friend. He wasn't looking for my likes or my comments to affirm her. Fear, fear ruins everything. And it did ruin everything. But we have hope. See, that's a bad situation that we're in. But that makes the hope that much better. And I'm just going to close here with Colossians 1, 15, 20, and it's not on the screen, so I'm just going to read it. I want to read it to you. I want you to listen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross.